Kings are called gods by the prophetical King David because they sit upon God's throne in the earth and have the count of their administration to given to him. Their office is to minister justice and judgment to the people, as the same David saith, to advance the good and punish the evil, as he likewise saith, to establish good laws to his people and procure obedience to the same as diverse good kings of Judah did, to procure the peace of the people, as the same David saith, to decide all controversies that can arise among them, as Solomon did, to be the minister of God to take vengeance upon them that do well, and as the minister of God to take vengeance upon them that do evil, as St. Paul saith, and finally, as a good pastor to go out and in before his people, as is said in the first of Samuel. Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is G.K. with the latest episode. Well, that's just a little taste of what we have in store for you in this episode. This is episode four of A History of the King James Bible Podcast, The Next 40 Years, Part B. I want to start by saying how humbled I am at the feedback I've received since launching this series. To all of you who took the time to write, thank you for the encouragement. It makes it so much more worthwhile when I know people appreciate the effort I am putting into this series. Now, part of the feedback I received was about the depth of information I cover. A number of people wrote and told me they appreciate the detail. I was a little concerned about going too deep since I'm aware some folks prefer the big picture over the details. Me? I like details. That being said, I will do my best to keep it interesting for the big picture people. To that end, let's discuss here James's relationship with the Catholics. Now, I've glossed over some points during this series, and I've deemed others unworthy of mention, since at this point, I'm trying to capture and transmit a portrait of the man himself. One subject I've mentioned when relevant so far is James James's relationship with the Catholics. And here I mean uh, Catholics in general and the uh, uh, Catholic Church in uh, particular, or in special, as James might put it in his writings. Now, this won't be the last time we discuss James and his relationship with Catholics. For example, we're yet to discuss the gunpowder plot. But I do have a point to make, since you may have missed it. So let's dive in. On more than one occasion, Catholics within Scotland conspired with those on the continent to use Scotland as a wedge to attempt to bring England to heel. And these conspiracies, if they had been successful, would have been very detrimental to James's health. However, in other plots, James himself was directly implicated. You could, for instance, dig into the Spanish Blanks plot of 1592, which was an apparent Jesuit plot to invade England with 30,000 Spanish and 10,000 Scottish troops. It's called the Spanish Blanks plot because one of the conspirators was caught with blank pages, 
signed by Scottish Catholics, which were supposedly designed to carry the details of their plot. Now, it was around this time, so coincidentally at the same time, that some were contending that James had not cracked down hard enough on the Catholics. This wasn't the only time he was accused of this, but with the Blanks plot, James was directly implicated. Let's see why. One of the documents found supposedly implicated James in a memorandum with which he had listed the pros and cons of a possible invasion of England by Scotland, with the argument coming down on the side of impossibility because James was struggling with controlling his own nation at this time, let alone being able to invade and control England. James was said to have declared that, In the meantime, I will deal with the Queen of England fair and pleasantly, for my title to the crown of England after her decease, which thing, if she grant, we have attained our design without stroke of a sword. It seems that James would take notice of a plot to invade England, and his attitude to it was a practical one. For me, it seems like the message for James kind of went like this. Okay, I've heard your plan. I can't get involved in that now. Thanks for the invite but I will be able to achieve the taking of England in my own time and manner. Cheers, King Jimmy. P.S. I'm not concerned that you plotters are Catholics. Now I'm being very loose here with the dialogue, so please don't ever quote that one. But I think it explains how I see his response to this plot. Let's move on to another topic. In part three, we covered James's wedding to Anne of Denmark. James and Anna... Uh, and sometimes you might hear me mix up the terms Anne and Anna, because uh, I think in Denmark she's known as Anna, and I think in the English it's Anne. I'm just using that interchangeably, so apologies, but Anne and Anna are, are the same person. Um, in part three, we covered James's wedding to Anne of Denmark. James and Anna went on to have seven children, three who survived, and unlike many of his predecessors, James had no illegitimate children. And Anna was the only woman with whom he ever slept. Um, many of James's predecessors had many, many illegitimate children, some numbering in like, you know, 10, 15, 20 or more. So this is unusual that uh, James is the only one to have none. Before their first child arrived in 1594, James was stung by rumours and gossip that spoke against his masculinity. Now, may discuss the accusations that he was homosexual in a much later episode, perhaps after I've discussed the Bible that bears his name. But for now, let's put that aside and look at this from the angle that kings and queens were expected to have children and failing to do so threatened the succession and the royal house's grip on the throne. There had been rumours very early on that Anna was with child, but a couple of those rumours had proven false. Now, as I said earlier, James was stung by certain rumours against his masculinity, so he had his church ministers tell their congregations that the king was not the illeg illegitimate son of Rizzio. Remember him, Queen Mary's secretary? Um, that he, had, he also had them say that he had most certainly consummated his marriage and he was in no way a bugger. Thankfully, shortly after, in 1593, Anne was found to be with child and gave birth to their first child, Henry, at Stirling. Uh, this happened on the 19th of January, 1594. 
His baptism was apparently a grand event and the money spent certainly stretched James's tre- treasure chest. Henry was put into the care of the Countess of Mar at Stirling, just like James had when he was a bairn. He was ensconced in Stirling with the same rules that James's mother had put in place when she placed James there. Do you remember those rules we discussed in an earlier episode? They were quite harsh. Anyway, they restricted the number of visitors who could be in the prince's presence with James adding that no enemy of the prince or their wives, bands or servants would be allowed into Stirling Castle. Anne wanted to raise the boy herself in Edinburgh and it caused a spat between the king and queen with James angrily swearing that if he were about to die he would with his last breath command Ma to retain possession of the prince. But Anne wasn't about to give up so easily, and the argument grew to the point that it created factions at court. Some for the Queen to raise a prince, and others with James' assertion that he be cared for and raised by the Countess at Stirling. Now, there's no family court back in them days, folks. This was family dispute, Scottish royalty style. In fact, it got so bad, not just within the court, but also on the outside, that James wrote to Ma telling him to stick to the letter of the contract and not to give Henry to anyone without permission from the king's own mouth, and that included the queen, Anne. He wrote, In case God call me at any time, that neither for queen nor estates pleasure ye deliver him until he be eighteen years of age. Okay, so that's quite clear. Don't hand him over to anyone if I die until he is 18. Let's turn now to a couple of readings concerning James. The first one will discuss his children, the continuing strife between himself and Anne over Henry, and how James asserted his power over the Scottish church. Realising that the king would not climb down, Anna tried a more dramatic tactic. James, staying at Stirling, was told that Anna had fallen ill at Edinburgh and wanted to see him. The king's counsellors were immediately suspicious and advised against his going in case some sort of attempt was made against him. Anna's party sent her physicians to Stirling to assure James that his wife was indeed ill. James took the bait and decided to set aside all occasions of suspicion, jealousy or pleasures and give a proof of his love to his wife by riding to Edinburgh. Anna turned out to be very merry and well-disposed and took advantage of her husband's rare show of concern to ask him once again for her son. This time, James took it in a more higher sort than before and replied, My heart, I am sorry you should be persuaded to move me to that which will be the destruction of me and my blood. Anna burst into tears. The following day, James said to Maitland, If any think I am further subject to my wife than I ought to be, They are but traitors, and such as seek to dishonour me. Realising she could not win, the Queen abandoned her campaign and publicly reconciled with Ma, but it was thought permanent damage had been done to the marriage. There is nothing but lurking hatred disguised with cunning dissimulation betwixt the King and the Queen, wrote John Colville in August, each intending by slight to overcome the other. Nevertheless, the king and the queen knew their duty, and Anna continued to give birth to a succession of princes and princesses. Elizabeth in 1596, Margaret in 1598, Charles in 1600, Robert in 1601, Mary in 1605, and Sophia in 1607. Although Margaret, Robert, Mary, and Sophia all died in infancy, fears about the succession were calmed. 
From England, the factionalism at the Scottish court and within the royal marriage was viewed with dismay. Elizabeth wrote to Anna and sent her messenger with a more important, lengthy verbal message giving the benefit of her opinion on evil counsellors. These evil counsellors were likely to be papists wanting to draw Anna away from her inherited Lutheranism, and it would be better if Elizabeth knew their names. Anna supplied only one name. It was Maitland who had talked her into trying to win back her son, and yes, he had tried to convert her. But now he was dead and there was no one else. If such a seducer emerged, she would let Elizabeth know immediately. Elizabeth's fears of Anna's possible conversion to Catholicism were uttered more widely by those alarmed by what appeared to be a new trend towards the faith in James's government. Although Prince Henry had been placed with the firmly Protestant Earl of Mar, the next three children, Elizabeth, Margaret and Charles, were given to guardians less staunch in their convictions. At the same time, Anna had taken as her confidant a known Catholic, Henrietta Gordon, Lady Huntley, and when James welcomed back into Scotland Huntley and Errol in the summer of 1596, there was an inevitable backlash from the Kirk. In September 1596, a delegation of ministers led by Andrew Melville and including his nephew James were granted an audience with the King at Falkland. James Melville commenced by informing the King that the commissioners of the General Assembly had just met in Cowper, at which point James broke in, angrily charging that such a meeting was held without a warrant and was therefore seditious. This was too much for Andrew Melville who attacked the King in so zealous, powerful and unresistible a manner that despite James's most crabbed and choleric manner, Melville bore him down. Calling him God's silly vessel, Melville took him by the sleeve and harangued him. Sir, a diver's time before, so now again, I mon, must, tell ye, there is two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ, Jesus the King, and his kingdom the Kirk, whose subject King James the Sixth is, and of whose kingdom not a king, nor a lord, nor a head, but a member. Worse was to come from the St. Andrew's minister David Black, who had become infamous for his attacks on Queen Elizabeth's religious purity. In a sermon he now denounced the English Queen as an atheist, protesting that religion in England was an empty show and claiming that the English bishops had persuaded the King of Scots to reintroduce an Episcopal government in Scotland against the terms of the Confession of Faith by which the Kirk was founded. Moreover, he claimed James had allowed the return of the Catholic Earls Errol and Huntley. But what could be expected when Satan ruled in the court and in the council? when judges and councillors were cormorants and men of no religion, when the Queen of Scotland was a woman for whom, for fashion's sake, the clergy might pray, but from whom no good could be hoped. Were not all kings devil's barns? Called before the Privy Council, Black refused their jurisdiction, claiming only an ecclesiastical court could try him. His refusal was disseminated to every presbytery. James was determined that Black would be punished and refused to waver. Edinburgh was soon in a state of crisis with a campaign from the pulpits that pressed forward and sounded mightily against the king and his councillors. On 17th December, a sermon at St. Giles used the story of the foiling of the evil councillor Hammam 
from the book of Esther to incite the congregation. The crowd became increasingly excited and leapt up shouting, Save yourselves, armor, armor, bills and axes. Running from the church, they seized arms, some going to the king in the toll booth, some to defend the ministers, shouting, Bring forth the wicked Hamam. Through the intervention of the provost, the riot quickly subsided, but James was furious. The following day, the court moved to Linglithgow, from where the Privy Council declared that the riot had been an act of treason. James levied a force of bordersmen and forced Edinburgh to hand over 20,000 marks to keep the peace. The riots provided a neat excuse for James to impose new regulations on the Kirk. He gave himself the power to influence the location of general assemblies, deliberately chose locations such as Perth, Montrose and Aberdeen, knowing the northern ministries were less supportive of Melville than those in the strongholds of St. Andrews and Edinburgh. Difficult ministers were called into James's own cabinet and subject to a barrage of threats, promises and bribes. James Melville lamented, Alas, where Christ guided before, the court began then to govern all. Concessions came from the General Assemblies in Perth and Dundee in early 1597. Ministries would avoid political themes and attacks on the king in their sermons, unless he was informed first in private. Presbyterians would deal only with ecclesiastical affairs. In exchange, a commission was set up to advise the king on matters ecclesiastical. To the great suspicion of some Kirkmen, James Melville sneered that they were the king's led horse and usurped boldly of the power of the General Assemblies. They were as a wedge taken out of the Kirk to rend with their own forces and the very needle which drew in the thread of the bishops. The commission did, however, propose that Kirk should be directly represented in Parliament instead of being a vociferous lobbying group. James compromised by suggesting that ministers could be appointed to vacant bishoprics and that these new bishops might sit in Parliament, thus allowing the Kirk parliamentary representation while restoring their pick. The Episcopacy Calderwood was disgusted. This was nothing better than that which the Grecians used for the overthrow of the ancient city and town of Troy, busking up a brave horse and persuading them to receive that in their honour and welfare which served for their utter wreck and destruction. Or as one old minister put it, busk, 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 him as bonnily as ye can, and bring him in as fairly as ye will. We see him well enough, we see the horns of his mitre. James got his way, and the first three so-called parliamentary bishops of Ross, Caithness and Aberdeen entered Parliament in 1600. The History of the King James Bible Podcast is brought to you by Like Flint Radio. You can find them on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. That's www.likeflintradio.com. Now, let's return to a history of the King James Bible Podcast with your host, G.K. G'day everyone. Just a reminder that the series is now available on iTunes. Please go and find us on iTunes. Um, there are links to our spot on iTunes on every podcast episode post at the dedicated website. So just go to a history of the King James Bible podcast website and go to any post there that uh, is a post dealing with a uh, podcast episode and uh, you can find the link there to our spot. 
and it would help us out a lot if you go to iTunes and leave us a rating, please. As I usually say, I have nothing for sale. It's all free. All I ask is that you take the time to share the show with someone, anyone, everyone. It will take you only a few minutes, and the best part is you're sharing a free service. Isn't that something? Another thing I want to say before we move on, uh, I want to say a very special thank you to Pastor Mike from Soaring Eagle Radio. Uh, thanks for your assistance, mate. Um, please go and visit Pastor Mike at SoaringEagleRadio.com. Okay, the readings I'm sharing today are both from Stuart's The Cradle King. It's an excellent book. Get a hold of it if you can. And uh, uh, and go to the references section of the website to check out the other fine sources that I'm using. Um, and I've got many more to be added. Okay, so let's get back to Jimmy and the boys. This next reading is super interesting. It discusses James's scholarly works and some good advice to a son. You will hear that he wrote one of the runaway bestsellers of the Renaissance period. Basilicon Condoran is an intriguing document, stuffed with advice gleaned from James's fairly conventional reading of the classics and scripture, but with occasional examples drawn from nearer home. On marriage, for example, James instructs Henry to keep inviolable your promise to God in your marriage and to avoid the filthy vice of adultery. Have the king, my grandfather's example, before your eyes, he suggests, who by his adultery bred the rack of his lawful daughter and heir in begetting that bastard who unnaturally rebelled and procured the ruin of his own sovereign and sister, and what good her posterity had gotten since of some of that unlawful generation, both well his treacherous attempts can bear witness. Henry should be well-versed in authentic histories and in the chronicles of all nations, but specifically in our own histories, the example whereof most nearly concerns you. But James qualifies that instruction. I mean not of such infamous invectives as Buchanan's or Knox's chronicles, and if any of these infamous libel remains until your days, use the law upon the keepers thereof. The strongest condemnation is reserved for the Kirk. The Protestants in Scotland, James writes, were clogged with their own passions, so that the Reformation did not progress properly as it did in Denmark, England, or some parts of Germany. Some fiery-spirited men in the ministry got carried away with their guiding of the people and began to fantasize to themselves a democratic form of government. This notion, overwell baited upon the rack, first of my grandmother and next of mine own mother, and after usurping the liberty of the time in my long minority, led to them casting themselves as tribunes of the people. And so in a popular government, by leading the people by the nose— one of James's favorite images, to bear the sway of all the rule. These ministers were the cause of all Scotland's problems, James continued, all the factions of his childhood, and ever since made sure to court the unruly spirits among the ministry, as a result of which I was oftentimes culminated in their popular sermons, not for any evil or vice in me, but because I was a king, which they thought the highest evil. Basilicon Doran was first secretly printed in an anglicized version by Robert Waldegrave in a tiny 1599 edition of seven copies for private circulation. Somehow Andrew Melville got hold of a copy, even before the book was through the press. 
Not surprisingly, he found much to criticize, especially in James's comments about the Kirk. At the Synod of Fife in September of that year, Melville's criticisms to Baskelon Doran were presented by John Dykes, lambasting what he saw as its pro-English, pro-Episcopalian, pro-Catholic tendencies, ingenuously dubbed its Anglo-Pisco-Papistical conclusions. The Synod did not have time formally to censor the book before James had ordered the arrest of Dykes, who fled instead into England. But in time, his complaints were drowned out by the overwhelming success of the book. Over the next few years, Basilicon Doran appeared in multiple editions that have been estimated at totaling as many as 16,000 copies. James had written one of the runaway bestsellers of the Renaissance. There we go. Um, I hope you enjoyed those readings. I chose these topics and readings to illuminate further James the Man. Unflinching when he wanted to be, sure of himself as king of the country and the church, letting the ministers know who was boss. And did you pick up there his view of the relationship between a king and his people? It might be worth going back for another listen, as it's a point I've been making throughout this series, and yes, he even mentions his old tutor Buchanan. Remember him? Did you hear James's advice to his son? Use the law against those whose libelous works don't fit my world view, which I have backed up with scripture. That's my paraphrase there, but do go back and have a second listen for yourself. Okay, that's it for episode four. I hope you enjoyed it. Please help me get the word out about the series and share it around. God willing, you'll join me next time on a History of the King James Bible podcast, where in episode five, we will discuss James, the King of England. Perhaps you've heard of him. If you'd like to learn more about this episode, go to our website, a history of the King James Bible Podcast.com. There you'll find reference to the works reviewed in the production of this series. You will also see any relevant graphics and also find credits to those who have helped us in the production of this series. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at gk at likeflintradio.com. A History of the King James Bible Podcast is brought to you by likeflintradio.com. So visit our sister website, www.likeflintradio.com. Okay, so that's it for now, and until the next episode, God bless and hooroo. James instructs Henry. I think I messed that up. I'll start it again. <laughs> There's a blooper for you, man. Here we go. Why can't they write normal, dumb English? Because this is 500 years old. Be dumbed down like modern society. Can't you just put text in a video? Get it right, Mike. Okay, here we go. Take three. <laughs>